The most useful dimension of the Enneagram begins when we move beyond the typology and develop an awareness of how we interact with others and carry ourselves in the world. Aphoria wants to invite coaches, therapists, and organizational development practitioners in applying the Enneagram in areas of inclusivity, leadership, and team dynamics. Visit aphoriapartners.com for more information on deepening your knowledge and practice of the Enneagram. That's aphoriapartners.com or click the link in the show notes. Welcome back to another episode of the International Enneagram Association official podcast. I'm Lindsay Marks and I'm here with Lee Fields, Seth Creekmore, and Seth Abram. And our guest is Jessica Denise Dixon. Welcome, Jessica. Hi. How are you doing today? (laughs) You know, I'm okay today. I'm okay today. You all know that my mom just recently passed away and grief is just a weird, fickle mm. beast mm-hmm. that I feel now tethered to. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure some semblance of that will remain with me the rest of my life, but it's still so fresh. Yeah. Um, but today I feel tired, maybe a little brain dead. So we'll see how this goes, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're really glad to be with you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Hopefully I offer something of value. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you do. You're here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Speaking of you being here, mm. you had a very specific reason for being here, a very exciting reason I for did. being here. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. I did a talk with Vanessa Fernandez on what's been missing. So basically how, you know, the Enneagram teaching has been kind of bound up in whiteness and how it's important for us to separate those out and also do like the cultural work while we're doing our type work so that we have like a fuller journey um, and more breadth and depth within the work as opposed to just like stopping at a disembodied type healing journey Mm -hmm. where we're just doing work around our type or we're just our type and that's the only thing that matters is us getting like mastery over that. There's more. There's also our cultural conditioning into really any culture, but specifically for the for people who were born and raised in the U.S., whiteness as a culture and the ways that that can hinder us from actually pursuing growth or, you know, sometimes our work can we can lead people unintentionally into trying to look more like a white person rather than like trying to find like wholeness within the type. Mm -hmm. And some Mm -hmm. of our descriptions can be not helpful if you are a person of color, you have a marginalized identity that doesn't necessarily fit in with whatever teacher's description of the type is. So we kind of just dove into that. It was lovely. It was, it was really beautiful. Mm -hmm. It was a good talk. If I do say so myself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it should. How did, how did you feel like people received it? Oh, my gosh. Your, what was your... Yeah, there was a, a lot of um, lot of good affirmation. I actually spoke to someone later at, the, at our conference party, and um, she told me that she already had a place to apply what I spoke about that morning <laughs> um, in a session where she saw some of the characteristics of whiteness playing out. And she was able to actually call it out and speak to it like during that time. Wow. And I'm like, that's incredible. Like that kind of immediate (laughs) 
application. You know, yeah. everyone's taking notes and we're going to go home and hopefully review them, but probably not, you know. And, you know, it's really quite incredible to hear in real time mm-hmm. that people are like applying it. It's really incredible. Yeah. Yeah. What's what's an example um, maybe that you used in your session of whiteness and type or, or something like that, that we often get wrong? Well, one of the things, and I'll speak for myself as an Enneagram 8, I always like to use myself as an example because it feels truer than like people who use like everyone else's examples. I'm like, but you're not embodying that. You don't live that in the same way. Um, But one of the characteristics of whiteness that I spoke about was power hoarding and power hoarding as this offshoot or result of scarcity that there's not enough. So, you know, there's, there's not enough power, resources, money. Ultimately, we are not enough. And so, therefore, we have to hold on to all the things that we do have. And with power hoarding, what you see is people who are in positions of dominance are the ones who get to choose who has power and who doesn't. And, you know, then there's a very strategic making sure that these particular people are the ones who hold on to power. And how for, you know, the type eight that's very focused on power dynamics, how maybe power over isn't the only actual form of power, um, but it's it is our cultural um, norm for power. So power over is that when you read, you know, <laughs> examples or, or descriptions of the eight, they'll talk about like being like dominating and and that kind of thing. And maybe that actually comes from this power over way of being that is coercive, that manipulates to get what it wants, that is dominating, that takes no prisoners. But there's also power with, which is more of a collective form of power um, that says like we all have our own power that we gather together to then uplift a community and uplift the world. There's also like power too, which is like generative creative power. Mm. And so what does it look like in a culture that might not have power over as the most dominant form of power? What might an eight look like in those places Mm. where they're not necessarily going to be like dominating in the same way where we think like CEO takeovers, you know, when you think of like hostile takeovers, that's what you think, you know, that's kind of like the quintessential stereotype for the eight. But in another culture that doesn't have the same ideas and ideals about power, the eight's going to look so different. So then our work becomes to simplify the way that we teach and teaching the centers of intelligence, you know, their their emotional habits and their focus of attention, the core aspects of the type, which are core motivations, the fear and desire, and then the reactivity, the passion, fixation, and defense. And if we get down to that, then it gives us space to say, oh, this is one expression of this, mm-hmm. is this power over dominant power. Another form might actually be this, that I, they have the power too. They they are creative creators in the world. Um, I think of, when I think of eights, I think of divine mother energy, mm-hmm. like birthing worlds, you know, like oh, the bigness of that, that, the power yeah. of that. And it's never always felt like only the, you know, domineering, you know, yeah. um, the big guy, you know, it just, it never <laughs> felt right to me, you know? Yeah. First off, you, you said you might be coming here, your brain dead. I would say your brain is rather alive. You just, <laughs> yes. needed, to, you just needed to talk about something you're passionate about. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. 
I do have a question for you, though, because um, you said because we we tend to be so bound up in I love that language in whiteness mm-hmm. um, because of that fact. Um, how can one practice discernment between whiteness and type? Yeah, that is where the actual work lives. And I think that there's not necessarily an easy answer. I had a student and I was doing, um, I was his supervisor and we were looking at Enneagram type and he was like, how do I tell the difference between my culture and my type? Because I know that my culture says this about me and this is how I show up in the world. The way that my culture tells me to show up is how I show up. But there's also this other part of me that feels like it could be part of me. And I don't know what's what. Mm-hmm. And my answer was, why does it matter? Mm-hmm. And of course, it, it can matter. But I think that when we start to see that there's like these things that are interconnected, it's like it's a both and rather than an either or. Mm-hmm. Like we don't have to like parse out exactly to get down to the nitty gritty. We can say, oh, you know, this has been my ideas of power have been influenced by this. Mm-hmm. And my, you know, this has then influenced my how I then live. Right. And so it's like both and and always um, just like a, I think like a melding of them rather than like we have to like pick out this part and pick out this part. Mm -hmm. Because one of the examples that I used um, yesterday was about, I call it productivity as identity. Um, Some people talk about it like competition, conquering, or winning. Like there's this way, one of the characteristics of whiteness. And Vanessa, who's an Enneagram 3, you know, she's like, well, I kind of get that one. You know, I get the competition thing. You know, I get like winning and wanting to be on top. And it's like, well, if if you're only doing work, around your Enneagram types proclivities toward that. And you're not actually looking at how the culture tells you to show up. The culture Mm -hmm. is is encouraging you to show up in this way. You're trying to do work around that. How far can you really go? Mm-hmm. Like how 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 deep can she really go without actually looking at, no, the culture is encouraging me to show up in this way. Yes. And so if she's only doing like that disembodied, like, well, my type is this, then that's like that as disconnected from my embodied experience, you know, right. as a woman of color and all these other things, like there's only so far that any of us can really get. Yeah. And what, I think that that's significant. Yeah. And what, what I'm hearing is if we're, if we're constantly being obsessed with trying to find all the differentiations, we end up, it, it feels like work, but it's actually not any work at all. It's a, it's a bypassing of the hard stuff, which is actually very simple and not sexy. Right. That's, Yes, I I could not agree with you more. Like, because we can really over intellectualize all of this, you know, and people do it all the time. Yeah. I almost mm-hmm. went on a rant during the session, decided to wait. But my rant is really about how we think sometimes talking about something enough is the same as doing work around it. And we have to move into doing the work, which mm-hmm. is often nervous system work. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm doing work around my Enneagram 8 type. I can be doing work around vulnerability, right? And so I can do something that's really vulnerable, but if I don't do the nervous system work that so that my nervous system actually knows that I'm safe to be vulnerable, what's going to happen is I'm going to kind of ricochet back to the way things were, or I'm going to try to like white knuckle and push my way through in a way that's unhelpful and unhealthy for me, Mm. right? And so if we're not also doing like that nervous system reprogramming around both cultural stuff 
that, you know, because we cling to these things because they give us a sense of safety, because we could be rejected. We could be cast out from our families, like all these fears that we have that are part of our instinctual drives, right, to be, to survive and to be connected. Any type of inner work requires a confrontation of versions of ourselves that may be uncomfortable or scary. Sarah Jane Case invites you into a poetic exploration of who you thought you had to be through her new book, The Enneagram Letters. You can find this creative approach to your personal development anywhere you buy books online or using the link in the show notes. I'd like to go back real quick to your example about the power over, power to, Mm -hmm. power from? Power with. Power with. All the prepositions. <laughs> um, so help me understand here, because like I could see all of those being like as you as you explained it, like the power over would tend to feel more of like a white culture thing. But I'm sure there's always someone to be power overed in any culture. Yes. So what would be the like the the healthy version and unhealthy version for each of those three because power is power over always bad, I guess, is a question. Mm. Or is it just how you use the power? So I'll answer this way. When hierarchy in general, as a general concept, is not necessarily bad. Hierarchy originally actually was created to support the people beneath. Yeah. Like I'm in a place of power to protect the people who are under me. So power... What I want us to do is restructure how we even think about power, how we relate to power, because power isn't inherently bad. But when power over the dominating coercive power is the most dominant one, then we do think of it as bad. And then, you know, eights who exert power are bad. And, you know, you want to not exert power. Like there's all these things that are end up being really, really murky around it. Um, So originally hierarchy was for a person who had power to be able to protect people who were under. And it's become now that those people under are to uplift the person who is at the top. And that's where it becomes, I think, a problem. Not just that someone's in charge. Someone can be in charge and still be someone who empowers every single person to live fully in the wholeness of who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but the power over that, that's dominating, that's what we want to look and see. Like, okay, this is a particular cultural understanding and way of relating to power that I think, you know, it's good to explore. And I'm not sure that I have like healthier and unhealthy versions of it, but I think it's always looking at the impact, right? So sure. some, as, a, as someone who is social dominant, I know that for me, um, I, I love power with, you know, that, you know, that we each get our own, but in groups, I can end up getting a little bit manipulative and wanting to show this person my power and to, you know, so that's, uh, that can be like a, you know, what we want to look at is the impact, mm-hmm. you know, how am I showing up? Am I, you know, trying to get the group even to go this way? Am I, you know, not, am I withholding this information so that they will go the way that I want them to? And it's just, for me, it's the impact more than like, this is what a healthier, this is what an unhealthy version is, because I think people get really stuck in that. Yeah. In our presentation, we kind of talk about the levels of development. I, you know, Don Riso, I really appreciate all the work that Don Riso put into them. And when you read personality types, one of the first things that that Don Riso says is um, these are not static and these should grow as we grow. And we look back and, you know, kind of the same language, the same things have been used since that book was published, I think, in 1984. Like a long 
long time ago. Like it was published <laughs> a long time ago. And, um, you know, but I think that people get stuck. I, I, I hate this so much, but sometimes eight, well, I'm, I'm the healthy eight. So, you know, I'm just like, okay, like, wait, what does that mean? Yeah. yeah. And B, you might be really healthy or working toward health in this one area, but mm. also real trash in this other area. So, yeah. and I, but I think people cling to that. They cling yeah. to, oh, this is the, you know, the, the level three and the levels of development. And this is like, this is in the healthy zone. And it's like, okay, well, is it, you know, some of the things that are in those zones actually are more like I have more privilege and when we conflate having privilege with health, that mm-hmm. leads us down a whole other, yeah. you know, say that <laughs> it's yes. a problem. It's yeah. a problem when we think, you know, getting more affluence. Like one of the things I think in the healthy levels for the type three, you know, and I'm like, so what about someone who is poor? So they don't have the chance for their souls to be healthy just because they face systemic and systematic oppression that leaves them in a place where they will never have the ability to um, have affluence. Yeah. We can't we cannot conflate affluence with health. Yeah. But it's so common. We were with the Enneagram Prison Project yesterday and one of the ambassadors just said, what if this whole thing was free? Right. Like imagine that. Imagine that if people who didn't have access to this, if it was free (laughs) and I was sobbing. Wow. Yes. And if I could go back to the like personality types, levels of health concept for a minute and just say one of the things that I find people talking about is if that as if those levels of health are somehow static instead of a constant fluctuation minute to minute. Exactly. And also unconscious. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so the identification with like some perceived level of health and that it's like a, a vertical axis and up down. So it seems like, oh, I can plot myself on this map and find myself. Right. But much like you were talking to tending to your nervous system, mm-hmm. it's it's a dynamic fluid situation second to second that you can only be aware of a piece of. Yeah. Right. So how is it? I love what you were saying about how is it actually showing up Mm -hmm. Mm. and it doesn't matter what the theory is or the concept is, but what is happening? What is my impact? Yeah. How is it impacting me? How am I impacting others? Go from there. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. It's the way. This is the way. Yeah. So uh, for those uh, that might be listening, who uh, this is new information or just information that they're incredibly, they find incredibly valuable. I mean, everyone should because this is what we're working towards. But where can people find you? Where can people learn about um, what it means to start this journey um, and, and learn from you? Yeah. The best place is the most updated place, which is not my website. You can go to my website. Something is there. Okay. <laughs> so go there and something's there. But my um, my social media. So on Instagram, Jessica D. Dixon or Jessica D. Dixon Coaching or the Anti-Racist Enneagram. You can find me any of those places and I will be able to chat you up. Yeah. We so and your podcast you is great too. I just have to say, oh yeah, yes. the anti-racist enneagram podcast. I really do need to like update it. You it know, I, did, I had like a seventeen-episode run, and then I was like, I think I'm done <laughs> for now. For now. For you now. You can also listen to our episode with Jessica on Fathoms as well, yes. which was also really, yes. really, really great. So hit the plea. 
a plea, yeah. what would be your plea mm. to the Enneagram community in 2023? My plea would be to do truly embodied work and not just like, what is my gut center saying? Like fully embodied work, like the space that we take up in the world and how that's shaped by um, our social um, positioning because of our identity, like that impacts and will impact the work that we do, the privilege the privilege that people have from their identities, the marginalization that they have, it's all going to impact how we move forward. So the more embodied work, fully embodied work that we can do, the better off we will be and the better world that we're actually going to leave for our descendants. Mm-hmm. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.